Friends, will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Abram drops into God's story suddenly and without ceremony five chapters before what we hear today in Genesis 12. At this point, we've moved through the Noah story, the Tower of Babel. We get this very long genealogy, and bam, there he is. Abram, we learn, is one of the three sons of Terah. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land which I will show you. And Abram, who is settled somewhere in lower Mesopotamia, goes. He packs up what he has, which is a lot of stuff, and he leaves. And then God makes a lot of promises about land and offspring, how he's going to defend Abram. And nothing goes well. Abram's wife gets, like, sort of kidnapped by an Egyptian pharaoh. It's weird. You can read about it in chapter 12. Then he goes separate ways from his nephew Lot, who is also captured. He and his wife can't have children, and this is really complicated for the whole business of being the father of many nations. Abram takes things into his own hands and makes life extremely miserable for an enslaved Egyptian girl named Hagar and the child she bears, Ishmael. Which is to say, Abram is a regular to not-so-great guy. You probably wouldn't have been able to tell him apart from any of the old-timers sitting on their front porches in ancient Mesopotamia. And the letter from Romans that we heard today makes this pretty clear. There is actually nothing special about Abram. He is not the smartest or the best leader. He does seem to be extremely cranky. But apart from that, there's really nothing that says he's the most awesome of the sons of Terah. We actually don't know anything about Abram except this. He says yes, and then he goes. God has absolutely no reason to think that Abram is going to believe him. And Abram has absolutely no reason to believe God. There is not a shred of evidence in the story. There is no down payment on a home in Canaan. There's no PowerPoint presentation of the promised land. No action plan that walks him through the steps of how God plans to help Abram deal with all of his enemies. Abram and God just kind of go for it. And what is likely the most irresponsible, reckless, and high-stakes plan in human history? The letter to Romans wants us to remember something else about this story. Abram doesn't actually do anything. God chooses Abram, calls him righteous, which just means in right relationship with God, way before Moses gives those laws on the tablets. Abram is righteous before there's a temple to sacrifice things in, even before circumcision. And that's really important, especially for us in this room, because most of us 
are not obligated to the 613 laws of the Torah like our Jewish siblings. The only reason that we're here, the only reason at all, is that we have faith in the same God and the same story, that somehow this promise has overflowed to us, to Gentiles. Somehow, those many nations, those numerous people, by a miracle, they now include us. So Abram doesn't lift a finger. He doesn't fulfill a single command. He actually doesn't have anything to believe in yet. Like, there's no stuff to believe in. And he doesn't have a positive attitude. <laughs> in fact, the only time Abram really gets into this tr trouble in the story is when he tries to do something, when he intervenes, when he puts himself in the position of, say, trying to kickstart this whole getting an heir for the father of many nations business. But Abram believes, despite everything, with no evidence, he has faith in a God who it turns out has faith in him. And so it's not a huge leap to think that maybe we ought to be like this, that this is the kind of faith we should have. Faith in things we can't see and promises that have to be believed without evidence. And if Abram is the standard of faith, there are some parts of the story that are pretty intriguing. Remember how I mentioned that Abram was supposed to go to the land that God showed him, the land of Canaan, right? That was like the big thing to believe in. Guess what? Abram and Sarai don't actually go there. <laughs> they stop short. They stop in a place called Haran. We are given no reason why. No explanation. Maybe their group got too big or there was an illness or not enough feed for the animals to keep moving. Or maybe they just got scared. Maybe the unknown was too overwhelming. Maybe they looked out and said, there's a lot of really scary people who live there. We have no idea the reason, but we do know that Sarai and Abram don't follow through on the one thing they're asked to do. At least not yet. Abram isn't actually striding in faith. He's stumbling towards the promised land, fumbling with these politics of the people in the land, and bumbling his interpersonal relationships. God will need to step in over and over again to clean up these messes. And God will have to come and clean up the messes of Abram's descendants and us over and over again. But Abram trusted God, and God said, that's good enough for me. Maybe all of that sounds a bit closer to home. Maybe that standard of faith has a little more familiar with you. It certainly feels a little more familiar to me. It seems pretty obvious that doubt sneaks into this picture on more than one occasion. Whatever God is up to, it isn't happening fast enough for Abram until it becomes virtually impossible, given the age of Sarai and Abram, now well into their hundreds, for this to actually happen at all. Whatever we think about what faith is, it seems like there's room for all of this to exist, 
there must be room for trudging and bungling things up and doubting fools like me and perhaps like you. We also learn from this story that this isn't actually the first time that God shows up to Abram. This is episode three. You heard about the first time, that promise I mentioned at the, be- the beginning where you have to go to- from your country. The second time is a covenant. In that covenant story, Abram is told to find a couple animals and to cut them in half and lay the pieces on either side. Covenants in the ancient world weren't made. They were cut. A person made a promise and then walked between the two halves of these carcasses. You cut a covenant to say, may this mess happen to me if I break this promise. So that's what God says. Take some animals, cut them in half, put them on either side. And if you were me or someone like Abram in the ancient world, you would be ready to take your first step into the middle. But something curious happens, something unexpected. Before Abram can move, he falls into a deep sleep. And we hear this. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Friends, the covenant, the consequences of breaking the promise, those are not Abram's to bear. These are not Abram's promises to keep. They are God's. This is a story about walking through a wilderness. Not a physical wilderness, but one that we call faith. And all along, we may be thinking, God's really asking a lot of Abram. He's really putting everything on the line for this move. But in this covenant, we learn something else. It's actually God who assumes all the risks in this relationship. God looks at the sleeping Abram and says, May I be cut apart like these animals if I do not keep my promises to you. If it doesn't work out with Abram, God has set this whole story in motion, this whole business of redemption and covenants and eternal promises for nothing. Abraham has faith in God, but God is the one who has faith in Abram. God is putting all his chips down right here for one reason and one reason only, because of love. We've been living into this Lenten season as people in the wilderness, looking out for wilderness in these stories that we're encountering. Wilderness is a place where we are stripped away, where the regular stuff we depend on for survival becomes scarce. In Abram's wilderness story, we meet a God for whom everything has been stripped away. A God who places herself in the hands of people. A God who puts himself on the line. And one day when the time is right, that God will make a life fully on earth. One day when the time is right, Jesus will come and will take upon the cross all the promises that we could not keep. 
one day, when the time is right, Jesus will live, die, and rise again to keep God's promise to us once and for all. Amen.